0: Well, turn with me in the Old Testament to the Song of Solomon, sometimes called the Song of Songs. I think it's very appropriate that we sing about the holiness of God. The Song of Solomon, like every other book of the Bible, is a reflection of God's ways, God's holiness, God's goodness, His righteousness. It reveals to us the will of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you, we will extol your love more than wine. rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions?' If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Ingeti. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day "'Breathes and the shadows flee. "'Turn, my beloved. "'Be like a gazelle or a young stag "'on cleft mountains. "'On my bed by night "'I sought Him whom my soul loves. "'I sought Him but found Him not. "'I will rise now and go about the city "'in the streets and in the squares. "'I will seek Him whom my soul loves. "'I sought Him but found Him not. "'The watchmen found me "'as they went about in the city. "'Have you seen Him whom my soul loves?' Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion. And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride! How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice! Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than... Another beloved, O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem." Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Tursa, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, O oh return, O oh Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Ramim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved." Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag. On the Mountains of Spices. That is the word of God. It is a tremendous word. It is one poem, one story. So I wanted you to hear it all at once, one time. On two occasions, I've led a missionary team to Britain to preach in various churches. In fact, it was because of those trips that we got to know our missionary to the UK, Tom McConnell and his wife, Kathy. The second time we were there, our team had the opportunity to take a one-day break. We took a little break from all of our labors, and we took the train ride in the tunnel that goes under the English Channel, famously known as the Channel, so that we could spend an entire day in Paris. So for Sylvia and myself and one other dear friend, a member of the team, we had two objectives in Paris at all costs. The first one, we were going to the top of the Eiffel Tower, which we did after waiting in line for three hours or so. And they don't have the same elevator laws that we do. We were packed in there like sardines as we went up the tower. And our second objective was to eat in a classic Paris street cafe, which we did. And we enjoyed a gourmet meal that was out of this world amazing. I can still tell you everything we ate. It was phenomenal. Well, there were several groups from our team that more or less stayed together and did various things that day. And once we met back to get the train Uh, Back to London, we shared what we had done during the day. And one of the questions that we discussed was, where did you eat lunch? Well, our little group of three, we outlined the gourmet meal we enjoyed. We described every course with exquisite detail. Then the next group, when asked, where did you eat lunch? Said, we went to McDonald's. (laughs) So I was trying to wrap my mind around this, that they flew 5,437 miles from Los Angeles to London, traveled to Paris, a city that is 2,000 years old and considered the center of gourmet cooking on planet Earth and they went and ate a quarter pounder with cheese. Or if you want to say a court de louvre avec du fromage. It's still a quarter pounder with cheese. The book of Song of Solomon is the Paris of the Bible. It is the center, not of gourmet cooking, but of the highest ideals given by God, invented by God, concerning the deep love relationship that is possible even in a sinful world between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It is the Paris of the Bible. And as such, while I've heard sermon series which go through Song of Solomon in just a few messages, this is our opportunity to visit the Paris of the Bible when it comes to God's view of marriage, his invention of marriage. So we're going to savor this. We're going to take our time through this. We will be well into the year 2022 before we're done with this book. It is God's love poem to humanity. In the generation after Christ, Rabbi Akiba wrote this in the Mishnah, which is an ancient commentary of the Old Testament, he wrote, quote, the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of, Sol- Song of Songs was given to Israel. All the writings are holy and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Now, tonight and next time, I'd like to just give you some understanding on the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. And just a little intellectual note here commentaries on Song of Solomon over the centuries tend to open with a lot of introductory material. As much as a third or half of any given commentary on Song of Solomon deals with introductory material, with interpretive issues. This gives evidence to the interpretive challenges inherent with Song of Solomon. There are a lot of Old Testament scholars who disagree on a lot of things. There's one thing almost all of them agree on. The most difficult book in the Old Testament to interpret is Song of Solomon. And at the same time, we just read it together. And one of the joys of Song of Solomon is that you can read it at face value without all the discussion and receive such riches and benefits from it. And so there's a great irony there. So I'm going to try to strike a balance. The introductory and interpretive issues are important to the book. So we're going to spend tonight and next time going through some of those issues but then we'll get into the text and we'll take our time going through it because I, I really don't want to miss this. I don't want to go through the drive through We want to sit down and order a meal that, is, that we're going to savor. So tonight, I'm just going to ask and answer some questions for you, but four or five of them, uh, to help us start to, to gain some understanding of the book because it is a complex book. First question, why preach through Song of Solomon? Why, why should we do this? Well, I mentioned to you last week that I was starting Song of Solomon. I gave you 10 reasons to preach the book. I'm going to remind you of those 10, plus give you three extra bonus reasons. Reason number one, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is useful for teaching, useful for training in what? In righteousness. There's a whole school of thought that says that God would never condescend to put a, a marriage manual in the Bible. Song of Solomon is not a marriage manual. It is God's view of marriage that he invented. That is training in righteousness. I spoke with one of the teaching pastors at Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors uh, just this past week. And this pastor has preached through Song of Solomon in the fellowship group that he's responsible for shepherding. And I asked him you know, how he went about that. And he said that he actually made an appointment with John MacArthur to talk to him about it and it went like this. I'm thinking about preaching Song of Solomon. What do you think, John? John said, it's in the Bible, isn't it? That was it. That was the whole conversation. It's in the Bible. That's the first reason. Second reason, we have a responsibility to our young people. We have a responsibility to our young people. We have a lot of young people in our church. They're going to get their view of romance and marriage from somewhere. It's better that we give them God's view. And not make them wander through the world trying to find this. I tell you this, we're officially living in a world that no longer bears any resemblance whatsoever to biblical standards of living. There's no way to receive an accurate modeling and teaching on the subject of romance and marriage from the world. It can't be done, it has to come from the Bible. It's a third reason marriage and marital intimacy is under assault. It's under assault. Marriage and God's gift of intimacy is under assault from all directions, and unfortunately, this has made its way even into the church. And so, more than ever, we need to return to God's view of marital love. This is a drink of water in a desert of lies in the world. And you just sometimes try Googling, what is a good marriage? And you're just going to get junk and nonsense. There's a fourth reason, and that is to give a welcome contrast to sexual sin. To give a welcome contrast to sexual sin, by Genesis 19, every form of sexual sin that there is had been already committed in the Bible. The Bible is filled with every possible form of sexual deviance and sin, and it's soundly condemned. It's often punished in Scripture. You can almost let your Bible fall open, and you'll be close to a theme of sexual sin not far away. The Song of Solomon is like coming up for air. It is a beautiful, perfect contrast to the sexual sin saturating the rest of the Bible. There's a fifth reason. And that reason is to avoid legalism. To avoid legalism. This helps avoid the legalistic notion that if you just avoid the topic of human sexuality altogether, that translates into righteousness and godliness. That was big in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it's making somewhat of a resurgence. That somehow, if we never talk about it, it won't be a problem. Actually, the opposite is true. And we don't do that with anything else. We, we don't say, well, we should never tell our children how to cross the street safely because they might try it. No, They need to know. Instead, truth is what translates into righteousness and godliness, isn't it? It's truth. And so we avoid legalism. There's a sixth reason, and that is to elevate human marriage to its rightful place. Song of Solomon is designed to elevate marriage to its place of holiness, its place of being something heavenly, something that is of God. Every marriage needs a booster of the holy, a, a, a booster of the heavenly understanding of God's invention of marital love. And Song of Solomon doesn't cheapen marital intimacy it doesn't make light of it doesn't make fun of it but neither does it avoid the topic and and it doesn't steal the glory from god that he deserves for his invention of marriage there's a seventh reason and that is to warn against toying with romance to warn against toying with romance how many parents in the church of jesus christ begin encouraging and snickering about and laughing about their 12 13 and 14 year olds being romantically interested in others but the song of solomon says just the opposite don't toy with it don't mess with it the song of solomon is designed to warn against toying with human love and sexuality it gives warnings against acting like an adult while you're still a child. The warnings are peppered throughout the book and the whole book itself is an implicit warning against deviating from God's design. There's an eighth reason and that is to give the story of redeemed human relationship. To give the story of redeemed human relationship. Song of Solomon serves as the story of human intimacy in its redeemed form. The very first manifestation that sin had entered the world is expressed in the area of Adam and Eve's sexuality. Genesis 3:7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That was the first expression of sin. The Song of Solomon is very much a return to the Garden of Eden. It is a welcome back. It's an expression of one area of life, if viewed biblically and combined with a redeemed life in Christ, can perhaps most approximate what it means to live in a sinless creation. It's the closest we can come. In which sin hasn't marred the most glorious of all human relationships. A ninth reason is to round out the definition of human of Christian marriage, rather to round out the definition of Christian marriage. Song of Solomon helps us understand that uh, that we have to go beyond what Christian marriage is so often reduced down to one idea: wives submit to your husbands, as if that's the only difference between a Christian marriage and the marriage between unbelievers as if that's the only difference no song of solomon explores the deep love which underlies that submission the deep love which also underlies the command husbands love your wives as christ loves the church and so it goes much further than just a, a, a list of rules and the tenth reason and that is to challenge the current and future married to pursue their love To challenge the current and future married to pursue their love. Song of Solomon is here to challenge every married person and every future married person to a love for one another that's profound and rich and growing in richness. Not just riding the coattails of a once upon a time romance. In fact, Song of Solomon traces the development of marriage over a life cycle. Did you know that? We're going to see that as we go. Do you remember that? Do you remember that you're supposed to enjoy one another and be a blessing to one another? Very similar to Proverbs 5, which admonishes a man to pursue the wife of his youth. Three bonus extra reasons. Number one, for men to better understand women. For men to better understand women. Let me tell you where the gift song of Solomon is. It's written primarily from a woman's viewpoint. That's so helpful for us poor men to give an insight into the heart of the lady that God has given you or to the one that He will. It's written from a woman's viewpoint primarily. Bonus extra reason number two to give God glory. I've actually read and I've heard it said as well that Song of Solomon is not as important as other books in the Bible. I have a hard time placing any book of the Bible above another because God put it here. This must be important to us. Why? Because it's important enough to God. God wasn't embarrassed putting Song of Solomon in the Bible. He didn't say, let's just hide it between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. Maybe nobody will see it. No, it reflects his heart for his people that this is one of the ways that a faithful follower of God obeys out of love and out of thankfulness for salvation. It gives God glory to know and to love his word. It's us saying, I want to sit and listen to what is important to you. And then one last reason, bonus reason number three, it is to point us to God's love. It's to point us to God's love. There's tremendous parallels and illustrations of God's gracious love, his tenderness and relationship with his people. To be very clear, and we'll talk about this a lot next time, Song of Solomon is not an allegory of Christ in the church, is not an allegory of God in Israel, but it certainly paints a picture of marital love that's patterned after the love of God for his people, and incidentally, patterned after the love of God within the Trinity. And as we go throughout this time, we'll try to mention various Trinitarian aspects that we see reflected in the Song of Solomon, although that's not the main purpose. So I think we have plenty of reasons to preach through Song of Solomon. Let me give you a second question. How does Song of Solomon protect us from ungodly views of marriage? How does Song of Solomon protect us from ungodly views of marriage? Let me give you an example. According to evolutionary psychological theory, the institution of marriage is based on the evolutionary foundation of survival of the fittest. And you were forced to learn about this probably as a kid. And as such, marriage was part of human evolution because humans have an insatiable drive to reproduce and pass their genes on to the next generation. That if I pass my genes on to more people than you do, then I'm more fit than you are. And so marriage developed supposedly as a partnership between a man and a woman that they both are essentially making a deal in which both of their genes will be passed on to as many children as possible For the sake of evolution. Here was the basic deal. The man gets exclusive physical rights to his wife. As the one who will bear his children. And the woman gets provision and protection. That it's a contract. But the basis for the relationship is. Is based on whether or not your personal needs are being met. One author wrote, the strength of the alliance depends on each partner's perception of the benefits and costs of continuing or terminating it. In other words, the minute you're not up to, up to par, I reserve the right to leave. You've broken the contract. In a long and tedious theoretical article called The Evolutionary Psychology of Marriage and Divorce, the co-author go on for pages and pages. This is called Suffering for the Ministry to read this. And they describe this sort of deal-making and mutual benefit to marriage. It's very contractual in nature. And they include the factors that make marriage more useful or less useful to what they call the consumer of marriage, uh, otherwise known as the husband or the wife. But what doesn't get mentioned in this cold analysis of marriage of ostensible former apes? If someone believed in evolution, what doesn't get mentioned? Love. You can't write a scientific article on love. You can't reduce it to some sort of theory. In contrast to that, though, Song of Solomon presents the richness of a a human connection of love that is so profound, so deep, so rich that it defies explanation. No, you have to use things like apples and raisins and gardens and vineyards to talk about it. Funny enough, one of the purposes of human marriage as given by god of course is is the bringing forth of children of bringing of being fruitful and multiply that's god's will but interestingly in the song of solomon this couple never mentions the kids they never mention the kids their love is all about the two of them it's just about them it is a tremendous reminder of the one flesh aspect of marriage which is the very first official description of marriage in the bible genesis 2:24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, Song of Solomon cries out, My wife or my husband is the most important person in the world my wife or my husband out of the 8 billion people on this planet this is the one god chose for me out of the 8 billion people on this planet i'm the one that god chose to love and minister to this one singular singular person and while the world says that marriage can be defined however you want and that even that is disposable song of solomon says your marriage is sacred it is holy it is worthy of praise It is the source of the greatest human love we know on this earth. Therefore, it is of God. Therefore, it should be treated as such. Let me give you a third question. And I don't know if you want to know about this one, but I was interested in it. What are the challenges of preaching Song of Solomon? What are the challenges of preaching Song of Solomon? One scholar wrote this. The Song of Songs is an adult book. This has always been one of its difficulties when it comes to the public teaching and preaching of this text. Unless you move immediately to allegory or in some other manner basically ignore the text, it seems that little can be interpreted literally for any audience that includes children. And that seems to be true. Uh, The problem with that is you can't wait until uh, the moment right before a young adult gets married before you try to quickly give them God's view of marriage. They need to know They need to be raised believing and understanding God's plan for marriage so they naturally long for marriage as God intended it. We are in an epidemic, interestingly enough, of marriage going down in statistics. In other words, there's more and more people in the world, and especially in our country, that are just deciding not to be married. Oh, they're engaged in, in relationships, in romance, but they're just deciding not to be married. We need to turn that around. We need to help our young people understand and Song of Solomon is a way to do that. In ancient Israel, it became traditional to read Song of Solomon out loud to the whole family during Passover. We just did it here. It only takes 15 minutes, but they would read it out loud. Why is this? Well, it helps avoid the wrong notion that completely avoiding the topic of human sexuality equals righteousness and godliness. That if we never talk about it, it won't be a problem. And it helped educate a young Israelite family into what their God-given role was to pursue marriage, pursue their family. Now, in preaching Song of Solomon, there's generally kind of two extremes. And I've listened to lots of sermons in Song of Solomon. I've read probably a dozen books on Song of Solomon. I read a lot of introductions. It's been a hobby of mine almost over the years. On one extreme... There's the extreme of preaching it in a sordid fashion, really kind of reducing it to a marriage manual. Some have even said, preach through Song of Solomon to increase the attendance to your church, to make something fun happen. And it's often preached in a very uh, funny, humorous, lighthearted way. And certainly there's a place for that at some level. But as we read through Song of Solomon, did you find it humorous? Did it? Did it make you laugh and giggle? Maybe a little giggles here, here and there. But it's it's meant to be high and lofty, and so that's one extreme. Preaching it in just a sordid fashion. The other extreme is avoiding the topic of marriage altogether and making it about God and Israel or Christ in the church. That's just flat out ignoring the obvious intention of the text. So how do we strike that balance? It's a love poem. It's the greatest of all love poems. And so the goal then is to let it be instructive. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it should be. And to maintain the elegance and the style and the class with which the delights of marital love are explored. So our, our goal is to do a few different things. First of all, it's a poem, and we'll attempt to honor that poetic flavor. It's not meant to be crass or crude. Instead, it's meant to elevate human marital love to the holy heavenly status that God has given to it. It's also not generally useful to try to be really dogmatic about every single figure of speech in symbolic language. Sometimes it's helpful for understanding and we will do some interpreting of the figures of speech. But there's often a wide array of possibilities, all of which help the reader yearn for God's will more anyway. So uh, it's, it's possible to take multiple views on some of the figures of speech and you still end up at the same place. Often commentators or preachers go out of their way to find the most explicit meaning in every text and to giggle their way through uh, saying that aloud and causing a stir. To be certain, Song of Solomon speaks directly about sexuality and intimacy, but it's in terms that are beautiful, that are poetic, that are, are, are incredible. And so to assign insensitivity and tactlessness and vulgarity to it is inappropriate and not, consistent with the nature of the book and as we go through this the main emphasis will be on the relationship on the marriage on the love on the connection that is spiritual in nature and and yes the couple in song of solomon are excited by one another physically but this is because of the love they've developed that came first And we're not going to reduce Song of Solomon to just a marriage manual. It's meant to elevate our theology of marriage, which elevates our view of God, which causes us to do what? Whenever you elevate your view of God, your worship goes up. And so ultimately, it's meant to make us worship more. It's very instructive on marriage. That will be our primary emphasis. But it's a poem meant to set a mood of acceptance and joy and emotional ecstasy in the connection of the greatest human relationship God has invented. Now, I know uh, some of you have kids listening to this, maybe now or later, and you might ask, what about my kids? Again, that is your decision, but I will maintain to my dying day the Song of Solomon will not lead children to sin because the Word of God never leads you to sin. We don't need help to do that. We're sinners already, and so I would urge you to use this as an opportunity at least for your older children to teach them about marriage and God's view of love. I know many of you who are married have expressed to me that you would have loved to have known more about what the Bible says about God's view of marriage before you actually got married. That would have been useful. And I think if we did this more, we wouldn't have, even in the church of Jesus Christ, the rampant marriage problems and divorce problems. Look, we had a a, um, little seminar for biblical counseling yesterday. You want to know 80% of the reason we have to have seminars like that? Because we have to do marriage counseling in the church. And so this helps to mitigate against that. And we'll give you a fourth question. I think we'll finish with this one. What are some helpful hints to understanding Song of Solomon? Now, I'm going to touch on some of these again next time, but just to give you some broad brushstrokes, give you a basic understanding, I want to give you a few helpful topics, some helpful hints. First of all, the characters. The characters, and next time I'll talk more about major different interpretations of Song of Solomon, but I'm going to give away our position right now concerning the characters. Some take a three-character view, and others take a two-character view, with the primary difference being that the three-character view pits Solomon against a young shepherd who is in competition for the affection of the young Shulamite woman. And according to the story of the three-character the three view, the shepherd wins and Solomon loses. Major problem with that, because why is the greatest love song of all time written by Solomon the story of the one that got away? That makes no sense, and that's not helpful. It doesn't serve any purpose. So we take the two-character view. The two-character view says that the groom is Solomon and the bride is the Shulamite woman. And I'll give you just two reasons. There's many more, but I'll give you two big ones. Again, first, if the song is written by Solomon and he's not the groom, he's writing a love story in which he loses to another man. And there is no purpose in the redemptive plan of God from Genesis to Revelation for putting that in there. That that doesn't make sense. It doesn't instruct us at all. And the second reason we take the two-character view, the groom is young, which leads to the possibility that the woman is or, or was Solomon's first and truest love despite his later reputation of having many wives and concubines and by the way that's a big question how can Solomon with hundreds of wives and even more concubines be the one to write God's story of marital love well ultimately the text doesn't answer that question the question here is not whether Solomon himself fulfilled this ideal of marital love the question is who wrote this, and whose life does it reflect? And we would say it's Solomon's, and as we get later into the book, I'll give you evidence that, yes, Solomon had uh, many, many wives as part of his uh duties as a king, and thats not that's not a good thing, that's a worldly thing. He had even more concubines for similar reasons. But he says in chapter six, there are sixty queens and eighty concubines. And virgins without number, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. And so in a, in a less than perfect situation, he seems to be declaring that you're my only love. And I know for us that is, that is completely beyond our comprehension, but we're not in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago either. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. So the main characters are Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Now let me give you a little interesting note here. Some scholars believe that the Shulamite woman was not a designation of a people, the Shulamites, but actually a proper name, and they give proper names to the man and the woman, Solomon and Shulamith. Shulamith is taken from chapter six, verse thirteen. Return, O oh return, or return, return, O oh Shulamite or Shulamith, return, return, that we may look upon you. Now, if Solomon and Shulamith sound similar to you, it's because they're from exactly the same Hebrew word. They're both uh, the word that is also given to us as shalom, as peace. In in Hebrew, it's not Solomon, it's it's shalomo. So it's and Shulamith. Wholeness, unity, perfection, peace. And so it's as if they even have similar names. One more little character note song of solomon is a poem it's it's written very much like a like an ancient play uh, that would be put on and so it contains the literary device essentially and you learn this in maybe greek literature of a chorus there's a chorus an audience to observe the developing love of solomon and shulamith this chorus is called the daughters of jerusalem the young unmarried women who are just living through this romance and they're watching and you know this: that multiple times warnings are given to those young unmarried women. Don't awaken love until it pleases. But they're the audience. They're the chorus. Hint number two. Let me talk to you about the poem itself. Song of Solomon contains many elements of poetry. But the idea that's prevalent is the top, ide- top identifier of Hebrew poet- poetry is the idea of parallelism. We've talked about this before. There's numerous varieties of parallelism, such as contrasting or symmetrical, and we won't talk about that. But basically, parallelism is what we might call rhyme of thought. Instead of uh, rhyme all the time, it's rhyme of thoughts or ideas. Now, for example, chapter 2, verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. The same thing said two different ways. Chapter 6, chapter 1, verse 6 They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. By the way, one of the interesting features of Hebrew parallelism is that when you translate it into any other language, it makes certain that you understand what the text meant because it gives you the same idea twice from two different angles. But more specifically, Song of Solomon has some classic elements of Hebrew love poetry as well. I'll just give you a few of them. There's the common theme of joy in being together. The theme of joy in being together. And as we read through Song of Solomon, that joy at times is thwarted by other forces. Her mother, her family, her brothers, friends, authorities, distance, even the weather in one occasion. The couple's always seeking to find the other and to be alone. And isn't that like our lives now, married couples? Everything conspires against you, doesn't it? The second element The poem accurately portrays the groom, Solomon, as being drawn to the physical sight of his bride. And so the the terms that he uses to describe her are both poetic and yet deeply intimate and personal, but it's meant to highlight the depth of relationship, the depth of their unity together. That this isn't just some sordid sexual affair, this is the result of a deep and abiding love. And one more element of Hebrew love poetry, there's an openness rather than an embarrassment about the physical union of marriage the typical ancient hebrew family believed that the more you talked to your children about what god's design for marriage the less likely they were to become sinful in that area doesn't that make sense it it was very different than than how we often think their thinking is open about one another it's inviting and it's not seen as filthy or dirty in any way But I think what's even more interesting about Song of Solomon as a love poem are the things that aren't there. As you might imagine, love poetry was very common and an important part of the literature of the ancient Near East. But interestingly, Song of Solomon is missing some key elements that every other major culture that wrote love poems contains. I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, And this is important because it sets apart Song of Solomon as God's view of romantic love, not the world's view. I'll just give you a few examples, and there's many more than this. In Canaanite and Mesopotamian and Egyptian love poetry, in that whole area of the ancient Near East, physical love in their poetry is almost always connected directly to the worship of the gods of those people. In other words, religious ecstasy was the ultimate goal. Physical love, sexuality was meant to drive you to the gods. It was meant to drive you to worship. That's why all through the Bible, uh, this idea of connecting physical love with idolatry and, and, and religious ecstasy is an abomination to God. It's interesting that Song of Solomon doesn't mention the true and living God until one time at the very end. But in the larger context of being a part of all the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the how to live before God section, It doesn't need to be conspicuous, but the absence of the false gods of all the people surrounding Israel is very conspicuous. Something else that's missing, the ancient Near Eastern poetry used a lot of nature vocabulary, gardens, vineyards, flowers, birds, just like Song of Solomon does, but there's one major difference. All the other ancient Near Eastern poets personify these elements of nature. They make them into gods. They make the vineyards a God, the flowers a God, the birds are gods, the gardens are gods. But to the Hebrew, all of nature is just the manifestation of the creation of the one true living God. And that is never the case that there's a personification of these things. Yes, they're used as metaphors and as word pictures, but never personified to become something to worship. Something else that's missing, ancient Near Eastern poetry often connects drunkenness and seduction. Those two go together, sexuality and drunkenness. That the best way to find love is through drunkenness, which leads, of course, to all kinds of regret and even to crimes. But in Song of Solomon, yes, wine is mentioned several times, but there's never a manipulation or a drunkenness with all the regret and the seduction. The only mention of drunkenness is when the, uh, when the, the chorus says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with what? With love. In other words, it's the man and woman who love one another fully. Their love is given, it's received freely, it's not coerced, it's not forced, it's not manipulated. And one other thing that's missing, ancient Near Eastern poetry is heavy on competition, jealousy, and faithlessness. The Song of Solomon presents love that's so strong that they only have eyes for one another. There's never a sense of of fighting and jealousy, which is one of the reasons I take the two-character view, not the three, because the three-character view is much more worldly than the two-character view. So there's the characters, there's the poem itself. Let me give you another hint, the context of the poem. And we have to work through these things so that it'll make more sense to you when we get to it. There's actually some debate about the author of Song of Solomon, but almost all conservative scholars agree that chapter one, verse one, is fairly clear. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I don't know how else to be clearer than that. But it it doesn't matter, really. No matter what authorship view you take, the book was still written during the times of the kings of of Israel, a, a time when faithful worshipers of God desired the wisdom of the scriptures and to follow God, those who were faithful. In fact, Song of Solomon was viewed as very important to the spiritual health of the Israelites. Why? Because they correctly viewed, the faithful viewed, that if the family is right, if the marriage is right, rather, than the family will be right. If the family is right, then the clan is right. If the clan is right, then the tribe is right. If all the tribes are right, then the nation as a whole is faithful. It's not a bad way to look at the world. What about the literary context? Let's just place this where it goes in the Bible. The Song of Solomon is included in the Old Testament wisdom and poetry literature. You have the five books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's meant to be instructive. The wisdom literature, in some cases, such as Song of Solomon, to address specific topics. Uh, Job addresses the specific topic of suffering and the sovereignty of God, for example. Uh, Psalms addresses the specific topic of worship. And so rather than just a how-to guide to marriage, the, the poetry the poetic structure gives this air of beauty and mystery to God's invention of marriage. It keeps respectability and sophistication at the, at the forefront. And just like all the other poetic wisdom literature, the, the poetic nature of it forces you to stop and kind of chew on it for a while and ask the question, what does this mean? What does it mean? And I think just to be clear, just the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired an entire book of Scripture to be devoted to God's institution of marriage demonstrates the importance of this topic. The poetic grace of the book is high, it's lofty, there's dozens and dozens of metaphors and similes and word pictures, and yet it never skirts the important issue of the marital relationship. As poetic literature, Song of Solomon is rich. It is the Song of Songs. Out of the over 1,000 songs that he wrote, This is the one that God considers the best, the very top of the top. Now, one key question in the literary structure, literary context, is this a fictional story using real characters like Solomon or is it a real love story? Yeah, it's possible. It's it's poetry portraying fictional characters in a celebration of marital love. But the presence of Solomon leads us to, to believe that this is a true story. It's a poetic rendition of a true story. This isn't exactly uh, how it happened. It's not exactly um, the words that were said. uh, They're compacted and they're contracted into, yes, the words that were said, but in ways that are now more poetically rendered. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, if you read some of his sermons, uh, he, has, he is the most published Christian author of all time because he had about a half dozen people in his congregation. This is in the, the mid-1800s, uh, taking down notes, and they would get together and compile his sermon, and they would kind of clean it up and make it sound. So you read Charles Spurgeon, you say he's the greatest orator of all time. Well, Charles Spurgeon used to stand up with essentially a three-by-five card and just kind of start preaching. Are the sermons of Charles Spurgeon an accurate representation of what was said? Yes. Is it exactly how it happened? Not exactly. They don't write down the, uh, oh, cleared his throat here, uh, coughed five times here. It leaves all that out. It boils it down to the very best. Is it a fictional story? No, it is a real love story. So there's the characters, the poem itself, the context of the poem. One last helpful hint, and you've already seen this in your Bible. Let me just tell you about the subtitles. Your Bible usually includes subtitles identifying the speaker. Something like he or she and others, or he, she, and friends, or lover, beloved, and friends. Just to be clear, those subtitles are not part of the inspired text, but they're very helpful. And here's where we get them so you can trust them. The translators have added these speaker identifications so that you know who's talking based on the gender and number of the Hebrew words. What do I mean by that? In other words, if the person speaking is identified by a singular feminine Hebrew pronoun, then it's the bride. If it's masculine, it's the groom. And if the speaker is a Hebrew plural pronoun, then it is the chorus. It is the daughters of Jerusalem. So just some helpful hints for you. Well, we're going to stop there for tonight just to give you some introductory information, but I just want to say one last thing. I have a little assignment for you and you can make as much or as little out of this opportunity as you like over the coming months. Here's your assignment. If you are married, read Song of Solomon aloud to one another at least one time this week. I just timed it. It took 14 minutes and 30 seconds. If you're in the stage of life where you would like to be married, Read and pray through Song of Solomon this week, asking the Lord for help and patience and for his will. If you're not in the stage of life or desire to be married, read through and pray for increased wisdom and understanding for God's will for marriage. Why is this? Because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And part of your responsibility is to be a carrier of this knowledge of the Word of God. And I promise you that the Lord will give you an opportunity to use that knowledge. Listen, I've, I've heard it said that you can't do marriage counseling if you're not married. I don't believe that. What do you need to do marriage counseling? You need to know the Word of God. And I've actually seen unmarried believers do some very good marriage counseling because they point married couples back to the Word, which is what the best marriage counseling is. Now, I will commit to every week give you assignments at the end of every message because I want you to be able to take this and apply the word of God to yourself and take advantage of the opportunity. And I'm praying for the testimonies of God's work among you and sanctifying and redeeming our understanding of something that has been so twisted and so torn apart in our world We wanna see redemption of marriage first in the church and then that will be an attractive feature to the lost to say, I want what you have and that comes only through Christ, only through the cross, amen? So there's our our first little uh, dive into Song of Solomon. Let's pray for just a moment. Thank you, Father, for listening ears. Thank you for um, those who are here and listening, those who are listening online. Lord, even now we pray for those who are in the stage of life not yet married but desire marriage we pray lord that this would be a focal point of prayer for them not to make them feel bad but to give them hope and to give them joy and to give them a a a view toward the future and lord for those who are married i pray god that this would be a time that would be rich for us to make us more like christ how christ would want us to live in the home how Christ would want us to reflect his holiness and his righteousness. We thank you and praise you for this time we've had. In Christ's name we pray, amen.